when we hear the Buddha's teachings and hear so much about the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, we begin to understand something of the need to really inquire into our suffering. And as for many of us, this goes against a lot of our cultural conditioning, the conditioning to at least pretend to be happy in life, Um, not to show when we're in pain, to hide our emotions, to deny even to ourselves a lot of the suffering that we experience. It means that when we come to practice, we're making a radical shift. It's quite a turnaround to suddenly face our suffering, to face our inner demons. As a result of it being so different than the way we may have lived from some of us many years of our lives, at least part of our lives, living with this denial of suffering, when we come to really turn to face it, it can happen that we become a little heavy-handed in the facing of that suffering. And sometimes, you know, for some of us, it might manifest as trying to push through that suffering. You know, it's like, okay, I get that I, ha- I need to look into this. And so, you know, we become really kind of more tight and contracted in the way that we face that suffering. It could also possibly come about because we can have a tendency in this culture to want things instantly. You know, and it's not just instant oatmeal, instant soup. We want instant enlightenment, too. And, you know, if if you go to a local health food store, um, a, a healing place, you'll just find the walls plastered with many different therapies, groups, many different things that offer this kind of instant hit. And I think probably a lot of people don't really want to come and do Vipassana practice because it doesn't appear to be so instantaneous. (laughs) But it's all right. We have uh, lots of space to practice. (laughs) And, of course, enlightenment is always now. It is in the present. But this grasping at, wanting, um, trying to get desperately doesn't serve us. No, it's really a perpetuation of the grasping, clinging mind of desire. (coughs) It creates agitation in the mind, which doesn't allow us to relax, open, and accept our experience. Many of us don't want to spend time actually cultivating wholesome qualities in the mind. We just want to get through this. And yet, we need to turn the mind towards these wholesome qualities in order for awakening to occur, in order for there to be the balance, the deep relaxation in mind and heart. If we don't, we will find ourselves broken 
or overwhelmed by the suffering that we come in contact with. There's no buoyancy in the mind, no resilience, just this fixated mind, hardness, brittleness. So tonight, I'd like to talk about one of the wholesome qualities that we can turn our minds towards to help us to find this balance. And so tonight I will be speaking about mudita, or the joy that multiplies. It's mudita is that gladness of heart that we find when we can rejoice in another's happiness. It's an unselfish joy. Sometimes it's called sympathetic joy. Or um, a translation that has most resonated with me is appreciative joy, where there's a quality of appreciating the goodness in another, the joy of another, the prosperity of someone other than ourselves. Mudita helps us to connect with the resilience of heart that can stay buoyant when faced with suffering, that doesn't get lost in the suffering, doesn't get broken by it. It helps us to learn to hold that suffering lightly. With mudita, it's an aiming of the mind towards inherent goodness, an inherent goodness that is in each living being. One of the root meanings of mudita is a soft-heartedness or a kindliness. So it has this quality of helping our hearts to soften, to not be so restricted, to not be so separate. In a world that's fraught with suffering, it's really important that we learn where it is we can turn our minds where they don't become broken, brittle, hardened. Nyanaponakatera, who's a German-born Theravadan monk, um, he said in his teaching about mudita, noble and sublime joy is a helper on the path to the extinction of suffering, not one who is depressed by grief, but one possessed of joy finds that serene calmness leading to a contemplative state of mind, and only a mind serene and collected is able to gain deliberating insight. It's important in the world, and it's important in our own unfolding of wisdom and compassion. When we do Vipassana practice, we will find that any of the four Brahma-viharas, and Brahma-viharas, for anyone who might not be familiar, is often translated as divine home, divine abiding, or our natural home. It's four qualities of heart and mind that are naturally present when we feel at ease, at peace in life. The other three Brahma-viharas being metta, 
or loving-kindness, karuna or compassion, and upeka or equanimity. So we will find that these qualities will naturally come forth as we do vipassana practice, but they also can be directly cultivated. That, you know, even if you're not sitting here doing mudita practice as a practice, it can happen during the day when you see something that you notice that somebody else is extremely happy. It could be a moment where instead of being really jealous that they're happy, that you'd be happy for them. So we find very little ways in our life that we can practice mudita, simply by bringing it into our consciousness. Any of these brahma-viharas, letting them become conscious in our practice and in our lives. The brahma-viharas help us to really cultivate an inclusiveness of all forms of life and to let go of our boundaries of restriction, to let go of this feeling that there is a separate, small separate self, (coughs) which is, as we all know, quite a painful state. Metta is usually taught first as a person goes through the Brahma-viharas because it lays a foundation for the unfolding of the other Brahma-viharas. We find that um, in metta practice, we connect with other beings through this basic wish to be happy. And so we begin wishing for ourselves to be happy and for all, all forms of life to be happy. Once we start doing this, we naturally see uh, that beings also suffer. And when we have the capacity to open to that suffering, that's when we're cultivating compassion, karuna. Compassion is classically described as the quivering or trembling of the heart in response to suffering. It's where we come in contact with suffering and there's a movement of the heart to alleviate that suffering, a connectedness. Sometimes it's just a bearing witness, other times it's an action. And then with equanimity, we tune into the lawfulness of life. How even people we dearly love have their own karma. That we can't be responsible for their happiness. It's where there's a balance in the mind that can recognize the way things are. And all of these Brahma-viharas work together to support the unfolding of wisdom. They help us to live in relationship to the rest of the world in a caring way, in a kind way, in an inclusive way. Metta and mudita have similarities in that they both help to cultivate 
And I use the word cultivate with a little bit of caution because we can get a sense of trying to manufacture, trying to create. Where to me, the, all of the Brahma-viharas are reconnecting with that inherent goodness. So it's more an aiming of the mind to that inherent goodness. And you know, we use various tools to aim the mind ways to point the mind that will help us to recognize these qualities. So metta and mudita helping to aim the heart towards its natural capacity for generosity, for friendliness, care for others. And there's quite a natural joy that arises when we connect with the purity of the benevolent heart, that heart that can freely give, that heart that is inclusive, that heart that is not just self-referencing, but is unselfish by nature. We just lose sight of it. It gets covered over by our habits of mind our habits of wanting, grasping, aversion. So medita plays a big part in helping us to move out of a self-centered view of life to an inclusive view of life. And in the course of my own life, I realize that I need all the help that I can get in breaking down this sense that I am the center of the universe, that the universe revolves around me. I know you thought it was you, but really it's me. (laughs) So with the practice of mudita, turning our attention towards the happiness, good fortune, prosperity of others. Through this we discover the capacity in our own hearts to feel that joy and delight. And this becomes an offering in this world fraught with suffering. when we start to come in contact with this joyful element, we do begin to get a sense of how contagious this element is. It's not an exuberant, raucous energy, but as Eileen Surawardana, who's a professor in Sri Lanka, says, mudita is a joy and appreciation flowing quietly out of the core of one's heart, one's heart, towards others, like waters from a spring flowing outwards from the bowels of the earth. It's this natural movement of heart. The dictionary defines joy as a feeling of happiness that comes from success, good fortune, or a, sen- a sense of well-being. And mudita is just that capacity to connect with 
that sense of well-being, happiness, joy in others. Through mudita, we learn that happiness does not diminish when we share it, but rather that it multiplies. I have a very dear friend who calls himself a mudita junkie. And just being around him and seeing how he does delight in other people's happiness one really gets a sense of this contagious element. (coughs) We can touch into mudita through children. Children have quite a natural capacity, although they also have their temper tantrums and other habits of mind, mind states that can be quite strong. They also can easily experience mudita. If you watch a child as they offer a gift to somebody. And, you know, when the, the person they're offering the gift to gets a smile on their face, the child's face often will just light right up. There's so much joy. I recently was talking to a woman who had a granddaughter, and she said that she would often do metta practice with her granddaughter. And they did it in the way of wishing well for other family members and friends. And they would do it as if planting a garden. You know, so they would plant this phrase of, may my mother be happy, may my father be happy, may I be happy. And then one day the granddaughter says to her, you know, Grandma, I notice that I'm happiest when I'm wishing happiness for you. You know, that they, they naturally get that sense of being happy for another. In a moment of mudita, it's as if we release the dormant forces of goodness that lie waiting inside us, just for the opportunity to be given voice to, that are so often not heard, not felt, not experienced. we'll find that we can experience mudita in many different ways. I, um, a while ago, had an experience of mudita around football. I'm not a football fan, but Edwin, my husband, uh, enjoys to watch football. And this is thanks to my father. (laughs) I try to thank him for it anyways. Um, And One time it happened that I had been away for a couple of weeks, and I arrived home on an evening where there was a playoff game. So there was stiff competition. (laughs) And I realized that it was meaningful to Edwin to watch this game, so I decided, okay, I'll watch it too. So we sat there watching the football, and, you know, watching these people get pounded around as they caught this ball, and it was, you know, not so appealing to me. But what did catch my interest, or what really sparked me, was tuning into the joy he was experiencing, because the team was winning that he was cheering for. And so, you know, through that, I just started really 
coming in touch with that joy, that opening of the heart. And before long, I actually became interested in the game. So much so that I actually watched the Super Bowl, where the team was playing again. And we had a couple of friends over who were football fans. And again, you know, it was sharing in their joy. Doesn't matter, you know, that it's not to me a way that I really want to um, or think is so wonderful, but through them I could still open and be joyful. It's using the power of empathy to really come in contact with what another person is feeling. A deep sensitivity that takes us to a place of connection. It can take us to a really pure, energetic level of relating with people that can be deeper than just the persona that um, is often just a superficial scene of someone. Another place in my own life that I find endless opportunities for mudita is just in teaching. In teaching and having the great honor to bear witness to your practice. To hear, you know, many times of people having insights, seeing things in new way, of people being able to accept that which at one point had seemed so unbearable. It's a great joy to share in that with people. It's now been about, not just about nine years that I've been living in the Insight Meditation Society community. And, you know, when I first came here, I think mudita practice was quite distant. But in living here, there's just so many opportunities um, through living in community and hearing other people's joy, happiness, that there's endless opportunities for this mudita. A great benefit of mudita is that it directs the mind towards the goodness, towards appreciating. Metta begins with reflecting on uh, qualities of someone that we do appreciate, where mudita actually has implied within it that we can appreciate that we have the, quali- the capacity to appreciate in order to take delight in someone else's happiness. So it takes the mind directly to this capacity to appreciate. This too can be against some of our conditioning. We have such a tendency to look at what is wrong in life, to look at people's faults. I mean, if you're even sitting in the dining room and you look across the table and someone's sitting there with a big glump of food on their face, it's, you know, the mind just becomes so pulled to that chunk of food that's sitting there. It's almost hard to look anywhere else. And this, you know, that's just a superficial level of looking at it, but often with people we'll do the same thing, where, you know, if we know something of the person, 
immediately will come to mind what we don't like about the person, what we find fault with. But metta helps us to appreciate, not metta mudita. The news is a way that we see this ingrained tendency to look at what's wrong. You know, hardly ever do we hear the good news. The news is filled with um, horrible things that are happening, which, you know, to some extent, yes, we need to uh, keep in touch with. But if you've watched yourself over and over listening to news when it's really grim, you can see the effect it has on you. And so there also needs to be this balance, being able to see the goodness, being able to appreciate, or we become very disheartened. We begin to wither. There's a new book out about the 17th Karmapa. Uh, It's called Music in the Sky. And in it, he gives a teaching on rejoicing in virtue. He says there are two ways of looking at rejoicing. Rejoicing in the virtue functioning as a cause and in rejoicing in virtue as a result. We can delight in the virtuous actions that someone does, knowing that at some point in the future they will benefit from these actions, or we can rejoice when these actions come to fruition. So again, we're multiplying our own opportunities for happiness. When we can see someone who's done something wholesome, we can recognize this and rejoice in that one day they will benefit from the fruits of this action. Or sometimes we're just reaping the benefits of things, wholesome actions we've done in the past. And we can rejoice in that. He also goes on to say, what are the benefits of expressing this sympathetic joy? In terms of others' virtuous actions and the results, which could even be liberation, being able to rejoice when someone has deep insight or is enlightened. If we sincerely rejoice in their achievement, we will receive a result that is even greater than what is attained by the person who actually performed the activity. Now that sounds pretty good. (laughs) If we can rejoice in their wholesome action, the benefit to ourselves being even greater. If we rejoice in the fruition of our own activity, the result will become immeasurable. I think it's something that earlier in my life I didn't ever reflect much on. Reflecting on virtuous action, rejoicing in it. We can learn to be happy even as, you know, I kind of stated in the football story, where it's people deriving their happiness from something that we might not find as so happy, inspiring. Um, Another way that I experienced this was once again in the IMS community. And one day for lunch there was tempeh. And, you know, tempeh, 
not a great fan of. Sitting around the dining room table, turns out there was a number of us that were kind of turning our noses up. Ooh, tempeh again. And then comes in one friend who was delighted in the tempeh. And, you know, in, in hearing his delight, I saw my mind immediately go to the rejoicing in his happiness. And it wasn't just me that it happened to at that time. All around the table, it was like a number of us hit the same spot at the same time, and we all began cheering. (laughs) It's really looking to see that the happiness that someone is experiencing is a wholesome happiness that it's not based upon greed, hatred, delusion, that it's not um, causing harm or suffering to themselves or others. But this doesn't mean it has to be the big happiness, supreme happiness, enlightenment. Because we really do learn to take happiness, to find happiness in the small things. Hogan-san, the Zen master that I spoke about last week, he is a person to me who really embodies this quality of mudita. When I first went and met him and went to pick him up at an airport, he was this little monk getting off the plane with two really big suitcases. And, you know, judging mind immediately came up. A monk with two suitcases? Where's the renunciation? <laughs> But what I came to discover was that probably three-quarters of those suitcases were filled with gifts. And so in his um, stay, he would be constantly giving away all these gifts. And before he would leave, he would go off to the stores and he'd replenish. He'd fill his bags again so that when he got to the next place, he'd have things to give away. He also would just delight in other people's happiness. You know, I sat with him a lot when people would come and visit, and just to watch him. When someone was happy, he would just light up. And then I had the experience one day where I was with him, someone came into the room and gave me a piece of news that made me very happy. And, you know, I got all happy inside, and the next thing I know, he's clutching my hands and we're jumping up and down in the middle of the room like two little four-year-olds. (laughs) He was just um, able to share in that. But what I also noticed with him was that in that, he didn't fall into collusion. He didn't fall into sentimentality or delusion. That in the very next moment, he was quite capable of hitting you with the Zen stick. That it wasn't an energy that he got carried away by, but did just have that simplicity of being able to rejoice in another's happiness. Mudita is said to be the most difficult of the Brahma-viharas, and it's also said to be the most neglected. In researching the Brahma-viharas, I have certainly found this to be true where there is a lot written about metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, equanimity. Um, 
And yet, the first time I went to the computer, which I am a Dharma teacher in the modern day, and I do go to the computer, the web, often <laughs> to research, uh, I came across the Brahma Viharas, and there was no links to Medita. It appeared, but there was no links. Fortunately, uh, time has passed since I first did that, and you can find bits and pieces about Mudita. I'm not really sure if it's because it's the most difficult that it's said to be, that it's the most neglected, you know, where the, it hits upon that challenge of turning our minds towards that, uh, which is really difficult. It may be that it's connected in some way. <coughs> but through our practice, we do discover that we have the capacity to face the challenges as they appear. And the challenge of mudita can appear in different ways. When we connect with another's good fortune, and if we're not feeling connected and confident ourselves, we can easily move into jealousy and envy, judgment, comparison. And these can be quite well-grooved habits in the mind. We find that when we identify with jealousy, envy, comparing mind, it's very painful. We might, you know, as we tune into another's uh, good fortune, have moments where it's like, wait a minute, they don't deserve that, I do. Or, you know, if anyone deserves that, it's me. Or, it's nice for them, but what about me? getting caught in an underlying fear that we can have that there's only a limited amount of happiness. It can also happen that as we become aware of someone else's wholesome qualities that we feel inadequate, that we feel our blemishes are being exposed in comparison, that we feel not good enough, really moving into comparing mind which is excruciating. There's a Tibetan uh, teaching story about the comparing mind, which I quite like. It's a story about a very proud, aggressive lion. And he thought he was the most powerful beast in the world. And then one day a mouse came and told him teasingly, you know, there's another lion, much stronger and more fierce than you are. And the lion immediately wanted to find his rival, thinking he would challenge him to a fight, would win, and would become renowned as the most ferocious lion in the land. And the lion asked the whereabouts of his foe, and the little mouse led him to a very deep well. He pointed down and said, the other lion is down there, just look. The lion looked into the well, and sure enough, he saw the face of a lion glaring up at him from the bottom. The lion roared at it, and the other lion echoed in reply. The first lion became so angry that he leapt straight down into the face of his enemy and drowned. This is where comparing mind leaves us leads us into the deep dukkha of the well. <laughs> <coughs> and with comparing mind, 
It doesn't matter. <coughs> Excuse me. With comparing mind, it doesn't matter whether we place ourselves as being better than, less than, or even equal to. In Buddhist teachings, these are all called conceit. And these are all the place that we create, I, me, and mine, which is suffering. In a moment of jealousy, we get caught up in obsessing about, thinking about, wanting, envy, disliking. It has such a strong poison to it. It hurts. In a, the next time you feel this jealousy, just let yourself feel it. It's awful. It's so separate. It also reinforces mind states of feeling unworthy, not good enough, guilt. It feeds desire, wanting to have what the other person has. You know, whether it be material goods, whether it be wholesome qualities, whether it be admiration that people are getting, that we would like to have. Jealousy and envy are called uh, the far enemy of mudita. They are the opposite. When they are present, the one way of working is to work with the antidote, which is mudita. It's to simply turn our minds away from the jealousy, the envy, and to be able to refocus on the happiness of the other. This helps to weaken these habituated states in the mind. And I know I have experienced this to be true, where in, in conversation with someone, there is a moment where jealousy arises, And if I can simply look at them and focus my attention on their happiness, the jealousy can fall away. And sometimes I'm really surprised how easy it is. I think it will be much more difficult. And yet, you know, with some, particularly with people that are dear to us, it can become quite easy. And so, you know, that that is uh, a place we can begin with people who are dear to us, or someone whom we can readily see the happiness or good fortune in their life. It helps to break down the rigidity and tightness in the mind, allowing for spaciousness, openness, acceptance, transformation. When we work with the antidote, we stop feeding these unwholesome states of mind that lead to more suffering. We can find that mudita 
is easier for those who are dear to us, but becomes more of a challenge with people that we either don't know or can be extremely challenging in the face of someone that we have a lot of difficulty with. It can be very hard to delight in their happiness. Our first reaction even to the thought, I mean, picture now your uh, most difficult person and then just see, does it seem that you could rejoice in their happiness? Sometimes we can do it. Sometimes we have that energy. And sometimes it's really challenging. And so it forces us to go back to the level of our shared humanity. That we have to reconnect with that person on the level of their basic humanness. Remembering that they are a person who, you know, as well as having whatever happiness they may have, that they suffer in their lives. But we can make a strong determination to not be swept away by jealousy, envy, comparing mind, but instead to work with the antidote, to gladden the mind, to appreciate goodness, to remember the inherent goodness. There's another teaching from Nyanaponikatera that I'd like to share. And actually, just to say about Nyanaponikatera, he didn't write a whole lot about the Brahma Viharas, but what he wrote captures them so beautifully. So if you have interest in the Brahma Viharas, I highly recommend at some point uh, looking into what he has said. (coughs) He says, let us teach real joy to others. Many have unlearned it. Life, though full of woe, holds also sources of happiness and joy, unknown to most. Let us teach people to seek and to find real joy within themselves and to rejoice with the joy of others. Let us teach them to unfold their joy to even sublimer heights. It's such an offering, such a gift, to bring joy into this world. This quality of appreciation that mudita helps us to connect in with is invaluable. Sometimes when it's difficult to work with someone who has been difficult and we find it hard to appreciate or we're getting caught and we feel like we just don't appreciate anything, it can be really helpful to look to the little things in life we do appreciate. One time when I was really sick and the world got very dark, the practice of appreciation actually became my lifeline. That I would spend moments in the day turning my mind consciously towards whatever I could appreciate. And, you know, if I was laying in bed sick, it might just be the plant by the side of my bed or a flower in bloom. Or it might be that the sun was shining, or that there was a cool breeze. Maybe it was that even though I was sick, I still had food. I still had friendship. 
I still had people around me that cared. What I found was, you know, it could just be to turn and look at one thing until the mind and heart opened. You know, so sometimes I would go and I would <coughs> swim in the ocean. And at first, when I would get in, I would swim all year. And at first, there could be a real contraction, tightness. But I, I just stayed in the ocean and worked with relaxing. At some point, there came that openness of heart. There came an appreciation. And, you know, on a dark, dreary day, it's a ray of sunshine. And those rays of sunshine were my lifeline, what kept me going when everything seemed so dismal. If we're really having trouble feeling appreciation or gratitude, we can think of all the things in life that we don't have that we don't want. So if you're stuck, (laughs) you can try that one. As we learn to appreciate, then we can learn to appreciate the goodness in others. Mudita has quite an energizing quality to it. This energizing quality is sometimes um, when it's not connected, when we get swept away by it, actually turns into what's called exuberance, which is the near enemy of mudita. The near enemy meaning it's a quality that, when it's present, can appear similar to mudita, but it actually has dukkha, suffering, in it. Um, and so exuberance, it's where there we get carried away by the excitable joy. It's not that simplicity of joy, but there's a real excitement energy to it. Uh, I had heard about this exuberant energy, and then when I first started doing mudita practice, I was practicing at IMS, and it was a retreat where many of my friends were sitting, and then I knew all, I knew all of the staff. So as I walked around throughout the day, it was party time. You know, there was just so many places to experience mudita. And I thought, oh, this is so easy. Who says this is a difficult practice? By the end of the day, I was totally exhausted. And there was just this big crash that followed. <coughs> it was quite exhausting. But mudita, on the other hand, is just the simple delight. When we notice this exuberance arising, uh, this energizing quality, that's to look to see how one can stay connected. Or we will, you know, I was only, I was exhausted in that case, but we can actually cause harm to others, which I also experienced when I was going through a period where there was a lot of joy happening in my life. And, you know, at times, it was a real, I was working with it. It was a practice to keep from moving into exuberance. But then one day I went for a walk with a friend, you know, and I was sharing this great joy that was happening for me. And right at the end of the walk, I turned towards her and I looked at her face, which I 
hadn't done in my joyful exuberance, and suddenly noticed she was in a lot of pain. And I know that, her, you know, listening to somebody who's <laughs> when you're really hurting is painful. You know, and I had become disconnected. And out of that disconnection, I had caused suffering. So to really pay attention if you start to notice this great exuberance. Keep your feet on the ground with mudita. Very important. All of the Brahma-viharas have different functions and they also all work together. Mudita reminds of us of joy when we're lost in sorrow. It gives us the ability to look beyond what at times may it be a diminished sense of happiness in ourselves and to find that happiness through others. It helps us to stay light even when we're surrounded by a lot of suffering. It helps to keep compassion from becoming drowned, overwhelmed. Or it helps to keep compassion from becoming dutiful. Mudita has this quality of lightening the mind, a buoyancy in the mind. I've heard it referred to as the smile on the Buddha's face. Another of its root meanings is to be pleased in mind or to have a sense of gladness. This gladness which leads to deeper calm, serenity, peace. Mudita is also a practice of generosity, offering of happiness, delight, joy. Generosity is the very fundamental basic teaching in Buddhist teachings. Often the first teaching that the Buddha gave to people when they came. Because it cultivates the mind of letting go, non-attachment, letting go of desires. In a moment of generosity, desire isn't present, nor is ill will, anger, or aversion. Generosity also helps to take us out of our self-cherishing framework and becomes an actual expression of the caring heart. Generosity helps us to erode tendencies of miserliness. It's very painful to give from a place of lack, and so we want to hold back, to hang on to. And yet generosity helps us to move beyond this habit of mind. And I know for myself, 
it's been truly amazing to touch into the benefits of generosity, to actually allow this to be a practice in my own life, to experience the joy that comes in giving. And, you know, I have found that I've been very blessed in having a lot of role models around me. And people who have very generous nature are able to give quite freely has helped to inspire me. You know, I feel like I was a person who was, you know, born with a clenched fist. And yet, through really consciously working with giving, offering, has helped to release this grip and to help the hand to open. So when we touch into generosity, this is a similar quality that is present in the mudita practice. As we're sitting here, our way of generosity might be quite different than if we were out in the world. You know, as we sit here and we might get a desire to give, it's not really going to be helpful if we start giving chocolates to everybody or have the desire to go out and buy gifts for everybody. But there is ways that we give deeply to each other in being here. We give each other the gifts of silence. Just holding the silence in which our practice can unfold. And we give each person the gift of being with their own process, where we're not interfering with a misplaced compassion, but allowing people to cry when they need to cry. Sometimes someone might be a little bit louder uh, than we would like. And yet, we just find that capacity to give, to allow them to be just the way they are. We give the gift of presence. We give the gift of doing our practice. The Buddha once said that the highest gift is the gift of Dhamma. What can be a higher realization, or what can be a higher offering than our own realization? Albert Camus, who is an Algerian writer and journalist who was involved involved in the French resistance, says, real generosity towards the future consists in giving all to what is present. So in being here, touching into this quality of generosity, quality that comes forth in mudita, the offering of our happiness, Today, knowing that I was talking about mudita and at times feeling quite hot and (laughs) a bit bleary-eyed from the heat, I thought, okay, who who would really be appreciating this right now? And so, you know, um, one thought that came was that, you know, all the creatures that are cold-blooded might really enjoy today. And, you know, the, the snakes that bask in this hot sunshine, Think how happy they might have been. And then, you know, I thought of people who are out on the ocean. You know, the ocean (laughs) can be really cold at times. If someone had to work out there, it was probably quite a pleasant day. 
Um, or I thought of people whom it was their holiday, and they're you know, at a lake swimming all day, children playing in the water, that there could be a number of people who found great delight in this heat. And the, you know, it just takes us out of our own suffering. It helps us to find that buoyancy of mind, that lightness of heart. It helps us to remember the goodness. And this all being so essential in the unfolding of wisdom and compassion. I'd like to close tonight with a quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama that comes from his book, Ethics for a New Millennium. My call for a spiritual revolution is thus not a call for a religious revolution, nor it is a reference to a way of life that is somehow otherworldly, still less something magical or mysterious. Rather, it is a call for a radical reorientation away from our habitual preoccupation with self. It is a call to turn towards the wider community of beings with whom we are connected and for conduct, conduct that recognizes others' interests alongside our own. Letting our practice be a spiritual revolution that allows us to make this radical reorientation away from self and in so doing, bringing true joy into the world. Let's sit for a moment. May any goodness that arises from our practice, from the work that we've been doing here, may this be freely offered to the welfare, liberation, and peace of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.